Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that sprinkles the orange confetti of truth on the unsuspecting establishment. I am Alex Andreu. On today's show, a pain in the class. Keir Starmer wants to teach kids how to talk proper-like, to break the class ceiling in education, while Rishi Sunak tries to work out how to use contactless. The next election will pit the son of a toolmaker versus the son-in-law of a billionaire. Will inequality be the big issue of the next election? And ticket barriers. As social media networks sprout like knotweed, the government is planning to shutter hundreds of railway ticket offices. Are we becoming a contactless society? Let's meet the panel. First up, it's Aisha Hazarika, former Labour spin doctor and host of the new podcast, The Power Test, about which we are not at all bitter. Hello, Judas. <laughs> Hello, I'm very, very, very sorry, but you know, my first love is with this collective of podcasters. Of course, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aisha, President Biden is in the UK today for a cuppa with King Charles, and has had a short bilateral meeting with Sunak en route. Number ten is pointing to this as evidence of the good health of the special relationship. That's the sixth meeting this uh, year, but might such proliferation of insub substantial bilateral meetings point instead to an insecurity on Britain's part. Well, I see that um, Joe Biden has just, uh, they've just issued some words with him saying that the, you know, relationship is is rock solid and that's evidenced by the number of uh, meetings he'd had with Rishi Sunak and he, he, he still loves Britain. Look, I think the world does like Rishi Sunak. I think we've seen him have better relationships with other leaders from Macron to um, to Biden. They don't think he's a complete narcissistic psychopath, which is what we had the last time. Mm. So I think he's doing better on the world stage, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that when it comes to that big ticket thing that, that this country needs, that this country was promised, which is that big, fat, juicy post-Brexit trade deal, that is not happening any time soon. Yeah, it just seems to me that it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, a cousin being in the same place at the same time and you go, oh God, I'm going to have to see them, won't I? What's the minimum amount of time I can spend with them while still, sort of still looking decent? Um, Tom Peck is the Independence Parliamentary Sketch Writer. Hi, Tom. Hello. Tom, once again, the BBC finds itself embroiled in a sex scandal. We can't comment on the allegations or speculate, obviously, but we can talk about the bizarre method by which which is being reported. Uh, Byline Times Adam Bienkoff um, said, BBC host asks BBC reporters standing outside the BBC about allegations against unnamed BBC star. Why all the gymnastics? Yeah, and it's such a shame we can't speculate because I've got, I've got a long list of names here. And I'm very happy to read some of them out if you want me to. But if you're insisting that we can't, then um, so be it. But I mean, the gymnastics is challenging, obviously, because just like we're doing a bit of gymnastics now, because they can't name the person. They can't do anything that would um, make it possible for other people to work out who the person is at the same time as very obviously knowing who the person is. But what's quite good about every time the BBC does this is it it sort of shines a light on how ridiculous all TV news is in a way. And it's just at this specific moment, it looks the most ridiculous. I mean, they're obviously standing outside the relevant location for no reason. They all do that. They all stand outside Scotland Yard, outside 10 Downing <laughs> That's Street. On so this occasion, true. They just go and stand outside their own office and they say things like, we can't be sure. And what they mean by that is we've asked and they won't tell us. 
Now that happens all of the time. It's just especially ridiculous when the person you've asked is your own boss. So I'm quite grateful for these. Um, they're almost like full day-to-day -day parodies of news done by the BBC sporadically when they report on themselves, and it will always continue. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper, among many others. Welcome, Hannah. Hello, thanks for having me. A, a troubling new report points to a sharp increase in the deaths of vulnerable women, specifically in the northeast. They're almost twice as likely to die prematurely than in other parts of England. What's going on here? So this report found that there were three things that were to blame. Uh, it was to do, inevitably, with the rolling back of public services. But the reasons were, quite predictably, COVID, the cost of living, austerity. And the three things together have caused um, a retrenchment of services that really put the most vulnerable people at extreme risk. Mm. So the figures are really quite startling. So there's been a 15% rise, 15% in this area between 2018 and 21, uh, in deaths from three things, suicide, addiction, and domestic murder. So three incredibly preventable things that vulnerable women are, are more likely to, uh, you know, uh, fall, fall into, what's the way of putting this, fall, fall, victim, fall victim to. to. And, uh, and the services that would prevent those things from occurring have gone. And so we've seen a 15% rise in that short period of time. And, and of course, it's small numbers, but the rise is still, is still very significant. It's just extraordinary that the effect has been that immediate, Absolutely, as it were, that dramatic. Almost immediately that you see these three factors coming together as a snowballing effect. Keir Starmer gave a speech in Gillingham last Thursday. He believes that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Meanwhile, there was not much schooling going on as teachers were out on strike, with speculation continuing to mount that Richie Rishi is trying to back out of implementing the independent pay review recommendation of a 6% rise. Brexit, the topic that has dominated the last few elections, has plummeted down the list of voters' priorities as economic concerns have risen. Sunak is the first UK Prime Minister to feature in the Times Rich list. Starmer does not miss an opportunity to remind people of his working class beginnings. Are issues around unfairness, inequality and class disparity set to dominate the coming election? Aisha, what was the meat of the policy announcement on, on education? Well, it was sort of like the development of a new word that many of us hadn't heard of, this thing called oracy. I, I, can, I can barely pronounce it myself. And it, the concept was to, you know, give working class children better speaking and communication skills because it is often confidence and you know debating and and being able to 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 make a good speech which which kids get a, a lot of practice at at private school and that gives them a a confidence so this was a sort of you know i think a good policy idea uh, pegged into a bigger frame about wanting to smash the opportunities glass ceiling and and which you know to be honest is is not new territory for for the labor party but actually I thought it was a good policy because I do think that those kind of skills are really, really important. I mean, I do a lot of work in the corporate sector. I've done work to help uh, the music industry set up apprenticeships to try and get kids who are not well connected into the, the industry. 
And one of the biggest bits of feedback that we get from employers is that we they get these kids through the door and they're very nervous. They're very, they're brilliant, like sending messages on a phone. What they're not very good at is kind of eye to eye contact um, and being able to express themselves with confidence. I think it was a good policy, but it's not enough. It's still quite thin. You, you, as you say, this is not new territory for Labour, but Starmer says that Blair's government didn't go far enough to eradicate snobbery, as he put it. What does he mean by that? And is he right? Um, what What's interesting from uh, his strategist is, you know, he's done a lot of work defining himself against sort of Corbyn, and this is a little bit of an attempt to define himself against Blair. I mean, I think it's quite interesting to go back to the the Blair years, which to me seems a, just a little bit, I'm not quite sure about that. But I think the point he's trying to make is that Blair wanted everybody to go to university. There was this big thing that Blair had this target of like 50% of people wanting to go to, to university, something mm-hmm. which quite a lot of people push back against, including Ewan Blair, who is Tony Blair's son, who has made a fantastically successful business off of apprenticeships and sending out a message that actually you don't need to go to university. So I think that's a bit of a a nod to that. I do think we are quite obsessed with universities in this country. And actually, if you want to unlock a lot of skills, if you do want to kind of level up the country, if you want to get more people into work, colleges are actually the key to unlocking a lot of that. But they're very much a Cinderella service compared to universities. So Labour has set out its five missions, and over the last five, six weeks, uh, Starmer has fleshed out each one of them in turn. What has stood out for you, or cut through, do you think, particularly? I'll be honest, I don't think that many things have cut through, and I think that is a that is a sort of a worry, although you can easily argue when, you're, when you've got a, a cracking poll lead, uh, and most, you know, even conservatives are slightly kind of winding things down and they're getting ready to, they're sort of doing their quiet quitting right now as they see the way the next general elections go. You could argue saying like, it doesn't matter. But I do think, I think Labour does need a vision. I think it is trying, but I think at the moment, you know, the, the analogy about the Ming vase and the polished floor, they're trying to do enough to sound like they have got some ideas, but they're not saying anything which is interesting enough to raise any sort of fundamental mm. criticism about mm. funding. The one policy that I think has stood out in a really good way, and arguably it's the biggest risk that Labour have taken so far, and actually there's two things. First of all, their housing announcement was very good. Now, housing isn't actually one of the missions, but it kind of probably will tuck in under growth. And the idea that they're going to build more um, affordable houses houses, and they're going to take on the green belt and force local authorities um, to, to, to build houses, that was very good cut through you had you know I even spoke to Tories who said my this is basically what we should have been doing and we're idiots like we should steal this policy immediately but they've just scrapped their housing targets and the other thing which I think is good but painful for the Labour Party is the fact that they've rolled back from this 28 billion pound plan no, but it is a good plan and we they should be striding ahead with the green economy but I think if they want to be honest with people, they can't at this stage commit to lots of funding. They just don't know until they're six out, six months out from the election mm. and they start having those meetings with the civil servants. They start looking at the finances. They're really slightly flying and uh, blind at the moment. So that was a painful U-turn. But I think it was probably a, 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 like a necessary one so that they don't get caught out later on saying you can't afford I mean, all of this stuff. I, I must admit, I had to look them up, the five. I don't know if any of you could name them off the top of your head, but I, I had to look them up. They are economic growth, 
build back greener, cut crime, repair the NHS and remove barriers to social mobility. Um, Tom, Starmer uses the, my dad was a toolmaker, my mum was a nurse line, so often it risks becoming a parody. But as much as people like us hate that sort of repetition, does it work? Um, well, one thing to always remember is when you or I think you've heard something a million times, most normal people have heard it once or possibly possibly twice or more likely never. I mean, there are reasons why politicians keep drumming out the key messages because they are just trying to hammer one point home to as wide an audience as possible. And they all do it. And they're clear, there clearly are reasons. I mean, there are limits when, for example, strong and stable leadership ends up on the front of Paraday greetings cards in like novelty <laughs> card shops. Then you've clearly gone too far. <laughs> but it definitely but it definitely works and clearly it works for Starmer and he's right to do what he's trying to do which is to differentiate himself very clearly in the public imagination from what they see as the Bullingdon boys who've smashed up the country um even Liz Truss had quasi quarting to help her with that she was not of that ilk herself but she was assisted um so painting yourself as a genuine change at this moment is extremely important especially when the change that when you get round to it the change you come to being able to deliver might not actually be as radical as you hope because of the scale of the mess that you inherit. So there's no doubt that he's doing the right thing, in my opinion. I looked at lots and lots of polling on this, and there are two trends, right? In almost every single poll I looked, a narrow majority of voters say politicians' personal wealth is not a factor in their voting, and an even larger majority say they believe Sunak is out of touch with people's real, real lives. How can this disparity be explained how important is class actually for for today's electorate yeah i mean the reason the, the disparity is quite easy to explain really because people are innately contradictory and people say one thing at one time <laughs> and they say something that contradicts it five minutes later but lots of polls when you sort of measure them off against each other don't add up and that's because that's just what human nature is like we like to think that we're above certain things when in reality we're very much not above them right <laughs> yeah i mean soon soon personally i i have never considered sunak to be somebody who is out of touch i mean he's immensely rich yes but he you know he's had hard-working immigrant parents who sent him to a very expensive school and he made the most out of every advantage it gave him like he doesn't remind me of like cameron or osborne or he's not he doesn't come from the world of sasha swire's diaries but i don't when he talks about his kids like taking his kids to TGI Fridays and you know he has worked as a waiter in, a, in an Indian restaurant when he was a student um, I think he is extremely wealthy but a pretty normal bloke but in tough times people are just unforgiving of his own personal wealth which he also has not earned himself by and large. I, I would slightly disagree with you on that I think he has in the past been a normal bloke but I, I don't know that he's been a normal bloke for a very very long time which kind of explains why he, he doesn't know how to use a contactless card but, but, <laughs> but, but just can I just jump in there right I've worked for a number of Labour leaders who you would all think are quite in touch and when we were doing visits with them involving like going on public transport honestly half the time they didn't know what to do either because <laughs> when you are at that level of politics when you're leader of the opposition as soon as you become leader of the opposition first of all you get a car you get an entire set of staff to do literally everything you never need to lift a finger again to do anything basic 
So I think that sort of is easy to kind of, and the only other thing I'll probably say is this on the class war thing, that I think class is going to be a big part and inequality and unfairness. And I think where his wealth matters is when you've got a very rich person who's like, you know, just got a heated swimming pool, et cetera. And like, you know, we're having to sort of turn the the heating off in local swimming pools, et cetera, et cetera. When he says, hold your nerve to people, then that jars. But I think Labour have got to be a bit careful about this because one of the by-elections I always remember, and Tom, this is pertinent to you for where you are, like the crew Nantwich by-election, <laughs> Labour, yeah. and I was in the Labour Party at the time, we thought it would be hilarious, absolutely hilarious, and an absolute no-brainer to send some of our staffers dressed up in um, black tie and top hats and tails to really hammer that message. It was Edward Timpson who was the, mm. the Tory candidate, and we were all like, look at him, what a rich so-and-so, so out of touch, so out of touch. And we got absolutely thumped in that by-election. People did not like that. And actually, Edward Timpson was quite... He was from a rich family, but he was actually quite a nice guy. Did it not transpire that the Labour guy dressed up in top and tail or whatever you want to call it was also himself from private school and was had a sort of a more plummy background even than Edward Timpson himself, as I remember rightly? I think so much went wrong with that (laughs) attempt at class war, which backfired spectacularly. (laughs) Hannah... um, that Sunak is so rich right now as to be entirely insulated from all financial worry, I think is a fact, yeah. right? Is it particularly difficult for someone like that to be telling people facing mortgage hikes, like Aisha say, to, to, to hold their nerve and be denying nurses and teachers a sort of proper pay rise? And does that mean that Sunak's wealth might actually subside as an issue If the economy starts to recover, are those two things linked? I think there's two things here. I think, yes, it is hard for him to use those terms, specifically hold your nerve. When, you know, when he doesn't have to do any personal holding of anything, he can just swan about enjoying his life and with no anxiety whatsoever. So that that particular phrase was, would be very difficult for people to swallow. But exactly as Tom pointed out, there's only so many people who have heard that Um Mm. sentence in the first place. And I think Aisha is right in what she said earlier, that people don't dislike him um, in the way that they perhaps have come to really dislike Boris or Cameron and those who exemplify those biggest excesses of the of richness in this country, the Bullingdon Club and so on. Um, they may know that he married billions, but they don't necessarily associate it with being his and they don't resent people for marrying someone they fall in love with. So... I, I don't think it's as straightforward as mm. we might assume that, you know, he's wealthy, therefore he can't say these things. Will Sunak's wealth become less of an issue if the economy improves? I'm not sure because, of course, the if the economy improves, great. But it's not going to see people's wages come anywhere near what they need for meeting new cost of living standards for being able to buy a home and so on. A modest recovery will not remove this narrative. I, I, I don't on on this point of being in touch with people's lives, Tory MP Heather Wheeler argued that the starting salary of twenty seven thousand pounds a year for a teacher is not small beans. I mean that translates as four hundred thirty pounds take home weekly pay. Do you think there is also a generational issue here? Do do we all tend to compare starting salaries today with what they were when we started out, whenever that was, ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, and think think of things in in those terms? Yes, we do, and we don't compare like with like. It's just we don't have the time or mental space to do the maths that you need to do to make 
um, a sensible response. People respond with their gut, with their emotion, uh, and they simply don't understand. You see this exact situation playing out with the discussion around interest rates and mortgages at the moment, misunderstanding that 6% today looks much different when mm. you're when mm. your mortgage is 10 or 12 times your, you know. I mean, I do salary. that. I recognize we that myself, right? So, I, I, like, I'm I'm forever shocked looking at estate agents' windows at what rents are. I look at them and I think, per week? Is that per week? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, in, in real terms, uh, £17,000 in 2003 money um, is £29,990 today. Which so, was the teacher's starting salary. That was the teacher's starting salary. So when ago. Heather Wheeler says starting salary of 27000 is is pretty okay to her, She's no hasn't noted that it's actually less in real terms. It's actually ten percent less exactly. than teachers used exactly. to start with. And she says it's not small beans. I think that's ironic, considering that's probably what teachers and public sector workers are eating at the beginning of their career now. Four of Starmer's five missions have focused on areas in which the Tories are seen to be failing. Right, economic growth, clean energy, health provision, law and order. It's been suggested that this big announcement on education stands out because it's not seen as a particular area of Tory failure. There's like other areas in which he could more usefully go after them. So why do you think Starmer is making such a headline policy? I think he's doing it because essentially it's right there in the polling below cost of living, immigration and the NHS for the issues that really matter to people. Um, And it's not something that is seen as a Tory failure. In fact, there was a very good Robert Colville column about Tory's modest um, and, you know, clear successes on education Mm. during their period. Uh, Recently, it's worth worth a read. Um, it's, It's not an area of failure, but it's also not one they're talking about in any meaningful way. Uh, except complete nonsense such as moral panics around sex education materials and so on. That's the only time Mm. you hear the Tories talking about this at the moment. So uh, the Labour know that this is a winner. People want to hear more about it. So they are wising up to that and and getting on with it. And also, I think parents know better than to fall. There has been an attempt to uh, label what Labour's been saying on education as kind of a, a woke uh, yeah, agenda yeah, yeah. and so on. I think parents know better than to fall for that because they are actually seeing some of the things that uh, Starmer is talking about playing out at home. Children who are refusing to go to school, the post-pandemic effect of you know the social lag and so on. This isn't woke. This is real issues in people's homes now. So I think parents can see through that. Yeah, I, I think he's tuned into something actually quite real, which is the concern parents have that their children will have a worse quality of life than than they did. And it really it's the first generation that that is right to feel that way. Um Tom, Johnny Mercer, um, who is we are given mm. to understand an exceptionally generous employer to his wife, um defended <laughs> Defended Sunak on the media rounds, he told Kay Burley that bringing up his wealth is class war and that actually people want someone gifted in charge. Do you think that in some profound psychological way we still equate wealth with being gifted, even when, as Hannah points out, it's actually wealth he married into? No, of course we don't. Everybody knows that Rishi Sunak has married um, the vast chunk of his fortune, which is, of course, not a crime. But I think that probably makes most people aware that if you are gifted by the amount of money you have access to, then he is no more gifted than any of the real housewives of Cheshire 
or anybody else that you could name. <laughs> Aisha, I'm going to out you now. Nothing to do with your new podcast. You went to a private school. Um, Starmer, um, this big bet on oracy, giving kids the speaking skills needed to succeed. Do you think learning how to present as posher than you really are actually tears down the, the class system, or does it reinforce it? Well, since I've been outed and we're getting into a bit of class war right here on the podcast, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I mean, that'll be honest about my own things. I think I think it is really, really important. So my, I did go to a private school, but that's partly because the local school I went to, I was so racially bullied for the first two years. There was literally no kind of people of colour near where we lived. And I had such a profoundly awful time in my first two years at school. I was so bullied, I practically didn't speak, which is quite weird thinking about the person I am now. <laughs> but then I moved to a, a, an all-girls, and it was a private school. And I think the transformation that my parents saw in me and the transformation I felt was absolutely incredible. And a lot of that was about confidence. And as I said at the beginning uh, of, of this chat, I do think it's a really, really important skill Everybody should be allowed to communicate and have the skills to communicate in the best way possible. One of the things that I think is absolutely terrible is that we we don't encourage people in terms of debating, in terms of oratory. By the way, I think the oratory skills in the House of Commons are absolutely piss poor right now. I know that's not a terribly eloquent yeah. way of saying that. <laughs> there are people who are barely sentient in there right now. They can barely <laughs> string a sentence together. And it isn't about class. And I'm going to push back dead hard on this. I will not have this framed in a kind of, you know, right versus left push. Some of the best orators used to come from the trade union movement. Some of the best orators in, in, in politics actually were from my part of the world, the Scottish trade union movement, these firebrand communicators who spoke with passion and elegance and eloquence in the debating societies at a lot of the universities around Glasgow were like great kind of hotbeds for political talent, socialist political talent as well. So as you can say, I'm, I'm quite passionate about this. This is what I was going to kind of ask you before, actually, Aisha, because we sort of were talking about similar things earlier. And I've, I've always, this is what I've never quite felt. I hear so many people say that um, the, the key thing that you get by going to a private school is that you come out full of confidence and you're highly articulate. But I know plenty of Etonians who will look at their shoes while they're talking to you because they're extremely shy and extremely nerdy. And I'm from Essex and I know countless working class people who are blessed with the gift of the gab, like, you know, like Tom Skinner off The Apprentice, for example. I mean, I'm not sure as that necessarily helps them get ahead in life. I mean, it, it does a bit. But what I don't quite get is what's the purpose of this, of, of Keir Starmer focusing on oracy as if it sort of get, get, will do something to address the, uh, the fact that apparently everyone who's been to private school is articulate and confident and people who haven't don't. Whereas I, 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 as far as I can tell, confidence is equally spread among everyone. I, I'm not sure but going to private school does do you that favour in life. I think there's something uh, in this, in terms of our comparison with other nations. So if my family lived in Ireland for a period of time and I was lucky to go over there and meet a lot of people who've gone through the Irish education system and, and they are just much better at this stuff for everybody. And exactly as Aisha describing, that it's part of your basic education that you are, you learn is how to be a good conversationalist and a good debater. And uh, it's not related to class or university attendance or, or anything else. It's simply basic education along with reading, writing, maths. And I think that Starmer has identified that this is something where we as a country are lagging, that we don't have a general population with those skills. 
I mean, look, everybody's not the same. There will be people listening to this shouting, why aren't you talking more about science subjects and maths? You've got a big problem with maths. But I think those building blocks of communication just give you a confidence that can just so help you, particularly in those early stages of your career where you've part of your getting around is is having good conversations with with people. Just to uh, remind listeners, that was Aisha who didn't say a word for her first two years. In school. <laughs> they weren't. I was very shy. <laughs> now they created a monster. <laughs> Next up, time for a new featurette, Hero and Villain of the Week, where our esteemed panel will nominate, and I will decide, which person in public life gets this week's virtual bunch of flowers and which the virtual bunch of fives. Tom, let's start with you. Well, minor links. The hero, for me, is just the nameless person who wrote the George Osborne email. I mean, meticulously crafted, <laughs> footnoted with links and screenshots, an absolute work of art and fantastically timed and then the villain is whoever threw orange confetti at the happy couple not because they shouldn't have done it but the hammering on that front for me is immensely tedious it was an extremely harmless act but they're a villain in my book solely because their act will have eased tension at what would otherwise surely have been the most gloriously tense and deservedly tense occasion quite possibly in human history very good Aisha how about you okay my hero is the brilliant, tenacious, forensic tax expert, Dan Needle, who has just done so much great work recently. But his latest sort of campaign project is looking at this terrible scandal that happened with the um, postmasters. And they had an absolutely terrible time. There was this like, you know, dodgy bit of IT. Loads of them ended up going to prison. They lost their reputations. And there's this compensation scheme that has been organized and it just hasn't been up to scratch. So he has done brilliant work kind of highlighting some of the flaws in this scheme. And he's really mm. kind of fighting to help them get their compensation and to simplify the compensation. And I think he's He's such a brilliant mind and he kind of uses his talents for such good. So here's my hero of the week uh -huh. and my villain of the week, Robert Jenrick. I mean, how anybody thinks, right, with everything going on right now, I'm going to really focus on making sure I instruct people to get a can of paint and paint over cartoon murals for children at children immigration detention centres. I, I mean, even as a cynical kind of, you know, hack that I am, you know, it, it's quite it's quite rare to be that shocked by something mm. and you just think, my God. Strong entries. Hannah? Well, so my hero is Gordon Brown. Uh, he has set up a project with Amazon in Fife, which essentially gathers together returns to Amazon that aren't usable um, and redistributes them via uh, a process that uses referrals from health visitors, social workers and so on. So £20 million worth of essentials, food, nappies, all the kind of all the things you need um, if you're in if you're very low income and can't manage uh, have been redistributed in the last 18 months and his project made all that happen it's all happened very quietly and now we've seen the results I, I knew nothing about this. and it, I just think amazing. it's a magnificent project yeah. uh, but my villain I'm coming for Jenrick 
as well, because not only has he spent his week getting very frustrated with Mickey Mouse and ordering it to be painted over in the cruelest thing that we've seen in politics for a long time, he's also been outed for being, just like Suella Braverman, having pre-existing links to Rwanda uh, before the Rwanda deportation policy was drawn up. So he, along with Braverman, has, has now been revealed as providing detailed legal advice to lawyers in Rwanda way back. So he gets a second strike from me. Right. So I, I think villain of the week is quite clear cut, uh, Tom. <laughs> there there, there seems to be two votes for two different reasons for Robert Jenrick. So I don't think we can avoid him being villain of the week. I'm enough. actually going to go for Gordon Brown. So oh. it's a clean sweep for Hannah sweep this for week because <laughs> I hadn't heard of that project. And the moment you started to explain it, a, a light bulb went on. And I thought, of course, what a brilliant idea. <laughs> Gordon Brown, hero. Robert Jenrick, not hero. Now, if you're ever in need of a sports massage, but don't fancy shelling out for one, jump on an intercity train in the UK. You'll be squeezed and prodded in every which way by all the other poor souls just trying to get to Penzance for the weekend. Two years ago, the Tories were telling us that we should be staycationing because of pandemic travel restrictions. Last year, they told us see Britain first because they couldn't sort out ports and airports. Now they seem to be dismantling the railways, having decided they're going to shut over 1,000 ticket offices over three years. Unions and disability campaigners worry it'll cause even more delays for the oldest and most vulnerable. But what about the wider ramifications of a society that is increasing virtual and faceless. Tom, ministers argue that only 12% of tickets are sold at ticket offices. I find that quite an extraordinary rationale. That is still just under 40 million tickets. When did it become okay to take away an essential service from more than one in 10 people? Uh, it's just so, so typical of Britain, this, by which I mean Tory Britain and hopefully not for much longer, in that it's just shit in every way. I mean, it's, it's not just about the 12%. Obviously, you cannot just take the piss out of elderly people and also poor people who simply aren't able to engage with the techn technological solutions because life is too hard for them. But it's not just a piss take for those people. It's a piss take for the other 88% of people as well. Right? I, I am a little bit of a technophile. I, I love an app. I was one of the first people in the country to get a Revolut card, for example. I had to go to a cafe and a man literally printed it out for me on his laptop. And he's probably a billionaire now, that guy. But even for me, this stuff does not work. Right? I'm on holiday at the moment. I was in Cornwall last week where I spent a full week trying to use parking apps in car parks. Mm. But the car parks have no phone signal so they cannot be used and you can be absolutely sure that that is exactly what will be happening in train stations as well they will be screwing over everyone not just 12 people who 12 percent of people who are digitally disengaged through no fault of their own but everyone i mean i am massively in favor of digitizing the economy or what have you but do it properly get proper 5g phone signal everywhere and if old people can't work the technology then you should just be able to touch in with a card and touch out where with a card wherever you go and be charged a fair price. But what we actually have in this country is apps that automatically now buy you a split-save ticket because the train companies are set up in such a way to deliberately fuck over customers just because they put hoping that they won't notice, right? So do it properly. Digitise the economy properly. Don't just strip everything back in order to take the piss 
even more. Like it's completely indefensible. I am enjoying this uh, facet of Tom very, very much. I have to say, I didn't expect it. Um, <laughs> L- Labour's and he accusing... didn't even go to a private school. It's I know, amazing. I know. <laughs> L- L- Labour's accusing the government of a managed decline of the railways. Um, I mean, other than trying to keep them in private hands because free market, good, state, bad, are they offering an actual alternative to train services that are falling apart or or just pushing more people into polluting cars. I mean, I just can't see how this all ties with our net zero target. I, I mean, it, it should be a period that is like a golden age for public transport, right? We should be pumping money into it. And there, there isn't going to be loads of money to, to pump in for Labour when they win, and they're actually going to pretty much... Uh, nationalise quite a lot of the railways, but it isn't going to be, by the way, it's not going to be like a magic bullet in terms of saving all of these things. I mean, I had an interesting discussion with some um, railway industry people a few weeks ago who were trying to kind of explain to me that this ticket office closure was all being sort of overspun by the RMT and the and the and lefties like us, et cetera. And I said, look, but will there still be somebody there? And they said, yes, and it's actually going to be better because the person can get out behind the desk and can actually kind of help people at the moment they're stuck behind the desk. So I was like, okay, that doesn't sound that bad to me, provided you are going to keep that person there. Because if you can't work a ticket machine or you've got a problem with your phone or whatever, you you need a physical person. And then they said, well, yeah, I mean, that's the plan for, for the time being. And it's the for the time being that I think kind of gives away the future direction of travel, which is if they were to say, look, you know, things move on, you know, we, we are we are buying our tickets. You know, we, we can't sort of just always cling to the past. We do have to sort of move on and modernise. And, and I get that. But if this is a sort of Trojan horse way of basically cutting staff, that's what I think the direction of travel is. And that's what I think the real worry is. I mean, sometimes you just want to speak to a human being. Like if you want to get through to your bank now, you've literally got to take a day off work and be on hold Mm -hmm. for about eight hours, 37 minutes before someone will pick up the phone and then the phone line will probably go dead. The idea that we are just moving into this world where you don't need human beings, of course, AI is going to play a role. Of course, technology is going to play a role, but you can't substitute having actual human beings. And I hate this idea when people say, oh, yeah, well, you just don't need people anymore. I remember being on a train journey really late at night and I saw a girl getting really like harassed by these two guys. And it was horrible, really frightening. And they were getting they were really drunk. They were being very sexually aggressive with her. And then she was obviously like pushing back and they were getting very nasty with her. So I went to get the, the train guard. And thank God he was there because he he basically sorted it all out. We do need technology. We still need humans. And I love traveling by train. I much prefer getting the train to Scotland. I go to Scotland a lot. Much prefer getting the train than, than the plane. But it's becoming, it almost does feel like the trains are becoming so bad, you're sort of forced to fly, which is equally as bad, by the way, and bad mm-hmm. for the environment. Every bit of public transport and is cheaper. not working. I mean, because it's much, much cheaper to fly yeah. to Edinburgh yeah. than it is to take the train, which is ridiculous. Hannah, is this a sign of a world that's growing increasingly impersonal? I mean, if I want to book a GP appointment, I use an app. Um, supermarkets are basically self-service counters now. A- any interaction with customer services, first of all, you have to get through a bot 
basically. Should we fight against it? Or is it broadly a good thing, actually? Does it free people who would ordinarily be manacled to those repetitive, terrible jobs to do other stuff that makes them happier and that creates more value for society? I mean, it's a good thing if it works. But exactly as both Aisha and Tom have said, when it doesn't work, it's so mind-numbingly frustrating that you just can't cope. And that's where we do need people to get through these problems where problems arise. I was going to jump in and Aisha already did it for me, but I have a lot of family work in the railway. So I hear a lot of the inside conversations around this and they genuinely are all of the belief that this is a positive move for exactly the reasons that are being touted, that it allows people to actually provide genuine assistance to offer bespoke help to people rather than just standing there and manning a ticket barrier that doesn't really need to but be But we there. all know that's not, that's not what's going to happen, right? Right. So two things. One, will that <laughs> I mean, actually happen? I mean, we can talk about the fiction that the government is presenting, but... Well, no, only... but it's not the government. This is really important because it's not the government. It's actually the railway industry that's putting this together. And in my experience, and, and you know, generally, and I mean this wholeheartedly, and not just because I happen to come, there's these people in my family, but the, the people in the railway industry are some of the most sort of committed and passionate and were always, always anti-privatisation and always knew that this is where privatisation would lead us. And yet they're still generally supportive of this measure. Mm -hmm. And so I do listen with some seriousness to what they're saying. But the, the reality is, is it's about funding, exactly as you said. So where it works, yes, these kind of things are a good idea. Um, but what, when the app stops working, when the ticket gate stops working, what then? And this is the problem because so often technology fails us and we need humans to, uh, to help. So I, I don't think we should fight against it, but we need to always be talking about what the minimum acceptable standard of available services that we, we mustn't ever let it go be, below uh, a standard that allows everybody to participate in our mm. public services. Tom, meanwhile, our digital life feels like it's becoming ever more <laughs> complex. I mean, it, it, a number of people I know, including me, actually set time aside last weekend to do threads. Is the lack of face-to-face socialising and and I use that in its broader context. So when you talk to someone at the ticket office or, you know, interact with a with a cashier at a bank, um, is it driven not just by lack of opportunity, but also by the virtual, just making increasing demands f of our time? Well, I mean, we've almost come full circle from what we were discussing earlier, because when we were talking before, kind of about young people having a bit of a crisis of social skills. Mm. That is it's very, very significantly because they are very different from the generation slightly older than them in the sense that they've grown up online and they, they, know, they don't have to go out in order to basically hang out with their friends to a certain extent. Um, and that is a big, 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 big change. I mean, social media is ingeniously designed to be addictive, like the infinite scroll, and it's definitely worked. And there are obviously massively harmful consequences and everything is much better if it's done face to face socially by a huge margin. I mean, I still hope that somebody might come along and regulate the shit out of all this stuff and say, no, it can't be done in this addictive way because it's extremely harmful. I mean, I had genuinely had very, very high hopes for Nick Clegg on that front, but those hopes are no longer in place. Yes. 
having high hopes for Nick Clegg, I think, <laughs> in general, in any kind of context, hasn't I'm, really I'm still, worked out. I'm still out. in the Nick Clegg fan club, but I'm, I'm gen- genuinely surprised. It's very it. much a fan club of one, mate. <laughs> I'm genuinely surprised of how, of how basically shamefully he's acted at Facebook, but that's a side issue, I suppose. Mm. Hannah, in the Netherlands, there are special supermarkets now where checkouts are slower stuffed by extra people so that older citizens have someone to chat to and interact with could something like that ever work in the uk i think actually this kind of two-tier system is already operating in the uk right you've got three options now there's the kind of go to the small till and bag it up yourself one Mm -hmm. Uh, there's the big scan it while you're going around in the trolley by yourself one and then pay with your scanner at the end and then there's the tills, of which there are now only about two of a former 25 open. So I think that system is working already, that, that you can self-select how you want to go about your day in a large supermarket in the UK, actually. Um, and, and the people on the checkouts are chatting away and being very p- kind and patient because they know that that's their job. Mm. Um, Aisha, Starmer was talking about teaching children human skills in this sort of artificial intelligence age, as Tom was saying. We've sort of come full circle. Might this emerge as another political dividing line, with Sunak very much the tech bro candidate and Starmer offering something a little more traditional, a little slower pace? Well, I hope that doesn't become the fault line, because I think that will not bode well for Labour, because, you know, I think there's absolute merit in, in everything that's been discussed. And I love this idea of a sort of a slower lane. I just think one of the things that we don't understand and all the people who are trying to kind of erase human beings for the amount of joy that people get from just having a chat with like, you know, people in your local post office or, or whatever. I mean, one of the reasons I love going back home to, to Glasgow, is you, you know, you can't do a quick trip to the shops. Like everything is like a big old <laughs> chat with people, you know, in uh, at, at the till and at the queue and things like that. And I think that's such a shame to sort of lose that. But I don't think I think it would be very dangerous for Starmer to to let himself be portrayed as the kind of analog prime minister in a, in a digital age, which of course was a bit of a criticism that dear old brilliant wonderful Gordon Brown got. So I think, look, as I said earlier, it's a, this Oracy thing. It's good. I, I think it's very important but it falls into the cute category, right? The bigger things that people care about in education is how is Labour going to fix what is this massive problem with public sector pay, teachers who are absolutely burnt out, their morale is absolute rock bottom, people are leaving the professions in droves, they're not getting enough people coming in, particularly you know skilled people, they want to try and get more men to come in being teachers and things like that. Now, the bigger problem is not kind of who is more tech bro, who's going to be more soft skills. It's actually how are you going to solve these fundamental, massive problems in teaching? Well, let's not kid ourselves that the kind of really crunchy, important stuff is really difficult and it involves money. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... 
I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for our escape routes. What luscious beanbags of culture can we recommend for listeners' weary brains to sink into? Tom, let's start with you again. How about this? Nothing. (laughs) I I join you from day 10 of my staycation. I've done Cornwall. I'm now in Cheshire. I've not read a book. I've not really watched any TV. I've been eating barbecues. I've been doing a bit of walking around the countryside. I've been to a steam museum. I've been watering some tomatoes. And that's about it. And it's been absolutely outstanding. My escape route has been an escape from everything. (laughs) But before I sound too smug, I have been watching Idris Elba in Hijack on Apple TV. And that is absolutely bloody brilliant. It's all set on a hijack plane over seven hours. I think part four is out today. It is complete garbage, but it's absolutely outstanding. Great. I, I, I vote for pottering, I think, which I very, <laughs> I very much endorse. How about you, Aisha? So um, I've been quite busy, so I haven't been watching loads of things, but I'm going to give you one thing to watch, which I really enjoyed, um, and one thing to avoid, like the absolute plea. So <laughs> I loved Succession, and I loved Shiv, and I love Sarah Snook, and she is in a film, a sort of a kind of gothic-y horror film called run rabbit run and she is brilliant in it she's absolutely wonderful and it's it's a, i think it's great it's quite spooky it's basically kind of you if you need a shiv fix then you'll enjoy this and and she's lovely such a, and um, where is it on it's on netflix at okay. the moment but the thing to avoid avoid at all costs i don't know why i watched this i was hung over it was a moment of weakness. <laughs> Possibly the worst thing I've ever seen in my and it's so bad on so many levels. It's called the Idol. It's so bad. It's meant to be some sort of pastiche of, you know, a Britney Spears type character, a sort of pop princess and what's going on behind the scenes. And it is the one of the A, it's really badly written. The dialogue is turgent and it's one of the most like awful misogynistic things. It just avoid, avoid, avoid. Well, I'll be watching that straight away. <laughs> I have to say, I kind of want to watch it. <laughs> How about you? How about you, Hannah? So I've just finished reading a memoir by the writer and director Emma Forrest called Busy Being Free, which is ostensibly a memoir about her divorce from the actor Ben Mendelsohn. Um, but it's actually about so much more. It's about LA and London and the differences between them. Uh, it's about celebrity and our sort of obsession with success and it's about the body and sex and it's just it's really sexy it's really interesting it's like emotionally very honest just really enjoyed it especially the insights into LA life sexy interesting and honest we we dig that um uh, so I'm going to offer a duo of horror films um one is called attachment and the other one is called the offering Um, And the reason I offer them as a duo is because I happen to see them on two consecutive evenings, and they're both based on Jewish folklore. And this is an area that's really lacking in the horror genre, and they were a really, really interesting change of pace and really, really quite creepy. It felt a little bit like when those very first Japanese 
ghost films were starting to make a splash where because you were you you didn't know the rules of the genre it felt much less safe to be in it so attachment and the offering their own various streaming services and that's the end of the tuesday edition of oh god what now my thanks to aisha hazarika thank you very much for having me to tom peck thank you very much indeed and to hannah fern thank you thanks for listening we'll see you next time oh god what now was presented by alexandre with hannah fern tom peck and aisha hazarika Producer was Chris Jones and his assistant producer, Adam Rowe. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and audio production is from me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.